Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Luke Harris, who's the CEO of The Property Mentors. Luke started his first business when he was 19 and bought his first property at 20. After that, he's done everything, multiple renovations, subdivisions, small developments, bought in mining towns, off the plans, and is obviously quite actively involved with property investors and the development space. This is a great interview, chatting with Luke about how he got his start and common mistakes that investors make and tips to get the most out of their portfolio. Here's Luke. Luke Harris, welcome to Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to have you in. Now, just to kick people off, can you give us a bit of an insight into who you are and what you do? I am um, yeah, I'm from the Property Mentors. We're a Melbourne-based property investment firm. Um, what we do really is to help people on their property investment journey so that they can help achieve their goals faster than what they'd be able to do on their own. Awesome. That, that taps in very well to our listenership, I think. So I'm looking forward to this podcast. have been for, for a while. What, uh, what were some of the posters on the bedroom wall as a youngster? I want an insight into the, into the young look. Yeah, look, um, some of the posters I had up on the wall, I was, I was actually quite a motivated little kid. I didn't really fit into school and wanted to go out there and generate wealth and make money. I was a bit different. So I had a lot of positive affirmations on the wall. I listened to a lot of Tony Robbins type stuff and I was involved in Amway as a young kid as well as as a 16 year old so I was involved in listening to all the tapes back then anyone that's old enough to remember cassette tapes I had a lot of quotes on the wall and I had uh, one of the things I do remember from having on the wall when I was younger was having a uh, picture of a video camera when I was 14 and I wanted my dad was a marathon runner Cool. And so I wanted this video camera because some of these these cool older guys had video cameras and so I wanted to film dad running his, his marathons. So I had a picture of a video camera on the wall and saved up and eventually bought it. Awesome. Now let's get back into you as a, as a relative youngster. You got a strong start out of the gates. Um, first business started at, at 19 and you bought a property at 20. Uh, how on earth did you do that? It, it was just, for me, it was a natural progression. I um, moved from job to job to job because I realized as, as a younger kid that there was other alternatives um, to making money. So I tried to upgrade my career and find opportunities to advance faster and moving out of my first real job out of Hungry Jacks at 14 into a uh, security traineeship at uh, 17. And then I moved into another job installing security alarms at 18. And then after that, I realized at 19 that I could go out there and get my own clients and that's where I started my own business very quickly after that um, found a way to buy a property. So so then when you got into property you did a little bit of everything you <laughs> did renovations you invested in mining towns subdivisions developments perhaps a lot of stuff that you advise people not to do these days <laughs> um, what did you what did you sort of learn about property and the ways that you can use it to build wealth? Yeah look I, I learnt the hard way, I guess, like a lot of people in that I was reading magazines and going to property events and uh, you know doing everything I possibly could, reading the newspaper and trying to find out what was the next big thing in property that was going to get me ahead. And I think a lot of people out there are really looking for that silver bullet yeah. that's going to build wealth for them and they're really looking for the next strategy and the, the reason for that is most people just don't know where to start. There's so much information out there. Yeah. And, and journalism at large, how, how, how positive do you think it is an impact or having an impact on property investors? Can you go and buy a magazine and, and, and formulate a strategy that's going to win? Yeah, the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is you, yes, you can, but you probably shouldn't do it that way. Right. There is a lot of opportunities out there in property. Uh, 
property investment is not the same for you as it is for me. It's not the same for the person on the street as it is for, for somebody else. And so really the difference is getting people to understand what strategies actually suit them yeah. and what suits what they're trying to achieve rather than just going out there and trying everything like I did. And as you said, I bought my first house and then I bought an apartment, then I did a, a couple of renovations, then I bought in a mining town, I bought off the plan, uh, did a development, did a land subdivision, uh, bought another off the plan property, bought in another mining town, and I just followed the strategies that I thought yep. were gonna build wealth for me without any real plan. And were you one of the lucky ones that did well out of a mining town? Um, I actually I actually did do okay out of a mining town. It was a Tasmanian mining town. It wasn't one of the, the big boomers like the Pilbara yeah. or Queensland properties, and it was a property that I could afford at the time. Yep. So like a lot of people, uh, as property investors, they want a number of properties in their portfolio yep. because it sounds good if you've yeah. got a, a, a bigger number. So I, I had uh, a borrowing capacity that allowed me to buy a, a property on the west coast of uh, Tasmania. Yep. Surprisingly, I've still got it right. to this day and it just ticks along and does its thing. Um, never had it without a tenant. So awesome. it turn, turns out that whilst it wasn't the ideal strategy, uh, it, it hasn't been a bad performer. However, there, there could have been better opportunities if I'd had a plan. Now. Fast forward to you being 30 years of, of age, you sell your business and you take an 18 month mini break. I'm guessing you made some money out of the business, but how much of that was, was funded with the property and, and how did that sort of change your viewpoint around property and, and lifestyle? Yeah, sure, look, uh, that was actually my second business. I, I sold my first business when I was 23 and moved to Sydney and uh, got a PAYG job because I realized very quickly as a young 20-something that the banks wanted you to have a, a PAYG job. Yeah. The surprising thing for me was that my staff could go out and get a loan yeah. because they were PAYG, but the owner of the company couldn't get a loan to buy investment properties. So that's why I thought, well, property investing is what I love. I love renovating and I love being involved in property. So what I wanted to do was go and uh, get a job and I thought I'd had enough of Perth. I thought I'd go and see the shining lights in Sydney. So. Moved to Sydney, got a PAYG job and continued building the property portfolio from there. Um, but I guess when I sold the second security business, um, which I started in 2005, sold that uh, 2010, I had a substantial amount of money from the, the business. I had a lot of uh, money coming in from the property portfolio. It was paying for itself. Yeah. So the, the money I had from the business, I was able to really do what I want. And yeah. I was looking at options. What am I going to do next? I thought I'd go back to Perth for a while, spend some time with the family uh, who were still over there. Um, they got sick of me pretty quickly. <laughs> so uh, I decided to go on a couple of uh, extended holidays. I took uh, a two month trip over to Europe initially and just relaxed and enjoyed awesome. that. Uh, came back to Perth for a little while and I had a few opportunities that I was looking at there. I uh, actually uh, temporarily uh, worked with a real estate agent that I'd known for quite some time, quite a successful agent there. Yeah. And then um, I thought I need to get back into property as a, as a formal business somehow, how am I gonna do this? So I hadn't quite decided exactly how I was gonna do that yet. I didn't wanna be a real estate agent. Yeah. Um, so I then I, th I thought, well, what am I gonna do? I'm not gonna stay in Perth, so I'm gonna go on another holiday. That's yep. probably the smartest thing to do. Right. Had the money in the bank, I had the time, so I spent a lot of the time at the gym, and then uh, the rest of the time I spent um, in South America and Asia, and I went back to Europe again. Uh, for another trip, so awesome. Quite a quite a nice time in my life. Um, it was uh, was challenging at times because I didn't have the responsibility of having a business. Yeah. So I didn't have phone calls coming in. I didn't have anything to keep my mind busy. And yeah. I think uh, as Matt Bayman, my business partner, has said um, previously as well, we both had many retirements, but yeah. 
when you're an entrepreneurial person and you're active brain, yeah. uh, you can't just sit on the beach all day every day. Once you've achieved that, you've got to get, you've got to keep going. Yeah, you can't just uh, stop and uh, sit in the rocking chair watching Oprah. Many of the most successful people I've met have could have retired many many moons ago, mm. but they've got ants in the pants. They've got they've got to be doing something. So I'm I'm guessing that after a while, people were saying, Luke, what's your secret? Family and friends, help me buy property. Um, from, from I guess from there, is that where you sort of got the idea for for the property mentors? Uh, sort of. The people that I'd helped through my twenties, they had seen me get results in property, and they they thought this guy knows what he's doing. I don't know where to start. Maybe Luke can help me. So I had friends and family asking for advice on which mortgage broker to use and which accountant to use, what property I should buy, what area I should invest in. And so I had a, a lot of uh, following, I guess, from friends and family and friends of friends that I would meet, you know, barbecues yep. and who knows what. So I helped a lot of people there. But um, when I got back to Melbourne, I, I fulfilled a dream of mine to buy a beachfront property, yep. moved into that and renovated uh, renovated that quite a substantial renovation and spent time on the, on the beach and really loved that, watching the dog and the cat run out the back gate into the sand dunes, awesome. uh, chasing each other. That was quite a, quite a memory. But after that, I really spent, spent a lot of time actually realizing that I need to help people in property full time. I still love property investing. I want to help people to invest because it's done amazing things for me. And at age 30, it was able to massively help me to inject capital into my business and to do renovations and subdivisions and uh, small projects, small development projects. So what I did was spend a lot of time stripping back the property investment industry, what's done yep. well, what's not done well, and really what are, what are a lot of the companies out there doing and, and how are they actually running their businesses. Yep. And what I realized is that I'd actually gone to a lot of property seminars myself. Yeah, I would describe you as a, a seminar junkie. Seminar junkie, yes. <laughs> and look, I'm, I'm the sort of person that would, I was the sort of person that would go to a lot of the free events. Yep. I didn't want to pay for anything because I thought, well, information's free, right? Yep. It's already out there, so why should I have to pay for it? Uh, I was a little bit naive to, to think that, knowing what I know now, but this is uh, what they say in, in hindsight. But um, ultimately, I went to all of these events and realized that a lot of the companies that were out there were putting on a free event, and ultimately, at the end of the event, they'll try and sell you something. Yep. Or they'll try and upsell you into something else or sell you a course of some description. And I realized that that, for me, didn't sit right with me. There was people running to the back of the room, signing up for stuff on the day, getting their credit cards out. I yep. just didn't like that, because yep. I realized that there's plenty of people out there that are signing up for stuff that are just not going to make money. Yep. And the presenters and the promoters that are gonna make money on the day clean up, a lot of them. And I thought, what are these people doing? Yep. There's, there's pe these people, I've spoken to them in the breaks, they're smart people, yep. yet you see them running to the back of the room to sign up a $20,000 course. Yeah, uh, and I couldn't couldn't understand that, and I realised that was one of the the shortcomings of the property industry. Whereas they've got uh, Matt and I call it the sharks and the cowboys. Right. There's a lot of people in the industry that are really taking advantage of unsophisticated investors. Yeah. Now there's plenty of good operators out there, but um, I realised that if I'm going to help people in the property space, it's got to be done ethically. Yeah. It's got to be done as a long-term business as yep. well. So as long-term property investors. Um, as a long-term property investor, I actually started putting together a consulting business so that Luke Harris, myself, would be out there helping people in a formal environment. Yep. At that stage, I hadn't met Matt, um, but I'd already started scoping out how this business was going to operate. Yep. Um, it was during that time that Matt and I started uh, working, uh, consulting for another company. Yep. That's where we met, and we realized 
not too long into that, that uh, the ethics and the morals of that company weren't to the level that ours were. And that's a hard thing to navigate, right? I mean, I guess part of the reason why I wanted to put this podcast podcast together is to, to get people in a room and chat to them and see how their sort of strategies and ethics matches with the, with the listeners. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the thing is that there is companies out there that may appear to be good operators on the surface, but you know, like the example that we went through, um, we, we realized very quickly that things weren't quite right. And so we started the conversation around um, how Matt was running his operation and what he was building, and we were basically on the same path, we just hadn't met yet. Yep. So we both had many retirements, we'd both been out there helping friends and family, just didn't have a formal structure to actually help people. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we, we came together and really started working on a model that would work for people long-term. And yep. as we both, when we both came together, we agreed that I'm a long-term property investor, Matt's a long-term property investor. We're not just gonna turn around and become butchers next week. Yep. It's something that we're doing for life. And if you love property and you love helping people, then putting a structure together to actually make a business of that, that's what we've done really well here and I think that's what uh, you know why we've had so much success in the last few years yeah and I think you can be more successful than the sharks because you're getting that that reputation that name and that repeat business as well let's um let's chat about the uh, the competition in your presentations um, you like to talk about the competition and that I guess is the the people that are outside of the the room when you're chatting to them and what they're doing in property investing and the competition I guess uh, on average just buying one investment property they're not sort of seeing that freedom, that is a bit that I guess the ability to, to have a, a lifestyle that they want. Yeah. What can you tell us about the competition, and what are they what are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? <laughs> yeah, the, the competition in, in in the way of um, other property investors really are your competition. Um, when you've got less than ten percent of the population investing in property, ninety um, percent of the population you're not even competing with. You're competing with uh, owner occupiers to yeah. go and buy property. So with the other investors out there, you're only dealing with another. You know, eight or nine percent of the population. So, when you've got a small pool of uh, investors that you're actually competing with for the best property investment, a lot of the investors that are out there are not educated. Yeah, they actually don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it. And most investors that are out there, even some of the advanced investors that I've spoken to, and when I say advanced, they've got significant property holdings. Yeah, um, they may not have known how they've done, how they've done it, yeah. but they've got significant holdings. And uh, at the end of the day, a lot of those still don't have a plan. And they've gone out there and put something together without really knowing what they're doing because they're starting with the property. Yeah. And the biggest misconception with property investment is that you need to start with the property. Yeah. You know, we go to barbecues and Matt and I love hearing people say that we meet for the first time, Luke, where's the best place to invest? Yeah. Oh, you're in property, where's the best place to yeah. invest? Where's the hotspots? Where's the next hotspot? <laughs> you know, and they say, well, that's, that's important. The question's probably a little bit too soon though. Uh, it all comes down to what you're trying to achieve as an investor and that's the biggest thing that's missing out there is yeah. that most investors are looking at the property. Yeah. Now, education is a huge part of your business. Why are you so focused on education? Why is that important for investors? Yeah, look, for us, the education really is fundamental to investing. And again, as we've said, for, for long-term property investing, you need to know what you're doing. There's a lot of companies out there that, again, this is through our process of putting the property mentors business together, was realizing that a lot of companies are out there to do a one-off transaction with you. Yeah, They'll sell the benefits of property investing or maybe some tax benefits or whatever else you can get from property investing, or they'll be marketing a particular hotspot, as you mentioned before, yep. trying to sell as much stock as they can in a short space of time. 
And the problem with that is it's all about the property and there's no long-term focus. It's about getting as many transactions done and moving on to the next customer. Yeah. And really to build wealth long-term, we've realized that if you're following that approach, it's the same approach that I was doing in my twenties and I was going out there and looking at the next shiny thing. But yeah. if there's nobody there holding your hand through the whole journey, then you're gonna be looking at a different company every time you go and invest. And for me, that doesn't really work for most investors. So without knowing the reasons why you're buying a particular property, you're not really gonna be able to have a connection with your long-term goals. I think that's such an important point. I mean, hotspotting's great, you know, like if you can find a booming area and you buy something and it goes up in value, that's mm -hmm. great. But then what do you do next? You know, like are you chasing hotspots for the next 10 years? You know, what is that sort of plan? With, with, with I guess, people that uh, are looking at in investing, there's the prevalence of investment specialist buyers, agents is sort of increasing, but, but a lot of people do decide to go it alone. Do you think that investors can do enough research themselves to achieve solid results and, and are they doing that? Yeah, look, there is investors out there that are getting some results. I think the, the key thing to note really with a, a lot of investors going out there and trying to do everything on their own is that most people have a life. Yeah. I don't know about you, but yeah. uh, you know, with families and things like that, travel commitments and work commitments, people have got sporting commitments and things that they want to do outside of their investing. And if you're already working 40, 45 hours a week, then you've got kids and schools and other commitments to, to do. Not many people have the time to be able to do research and due diligence properly yeah. and to learn about finance and accounting properly and to do you know, depreciation and learn about yeah. all of the things that they need to learn. So it's hard to be an expert in all of those fields that you need to be in the property investment space and have a life at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, depreciation keeps me busy just on its own. I know next to nothing about certain facets of accounting and that sort of thing. How important is it to set that goal, to sort of work backwards from this is where I want to be rather than going property, 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 what have I built? Yeah, I think that's fundamental to the success of any portfolio. If you look at less than 1% of property investors in Australia have less uh, have more than six properties. Yeah. And six isn't a big number. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not that hard to have a portfolio of six or more properties. But the most most investors have one or two. Yeah. And the biggest problem with most people's investment strategy is they're selling the property at the wrong time. They're buying yeah. at the wrong time, they're buying the wrong property, and their strategy is basically affected by what's happening in their life at that exact point in time. Yeah. So that, that's why they'll be looking at a hotspot or they'll be looking at a particular boom area or they've read something in a magazine or a newspaper. Very much the same as me. Yeah. I was reading Steve McKnight's books back in 2004. Right. And if you look at the purchase price, they're all under $100,000, Bendigo and Ballarat and mining towns. Yeah. Guess what I did? I bought in a mining town for $79,500. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of saying, this is what's going on in my life right now. This is something, a bit of a, one piece of information that I've read. Yeah. But the problem with that information was I didn't know how to apply it to my own situation. Yeah. So information about a boom area or a hotspot might be fantastic for one investor, it might be a disaster for another one. Yeah. And I think the biggest problem with that is that people are out there trying to navigate their way through all of this information that's out there yeah. without knowing how to apply that information to their own situation. Yeah. And that's the, the biggest challenge that we've found is that most investors fail in their their uh, property investing because they're not treating it as a business yes and they're not working backwards from their point b position yeah so if you understand where you're at right now and how you got to this financial position in your life only then can you understand what steps you need to take to get towards your point b position yeah 
But see, most investors haven't even identified what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. They haven't identified their point B. They haven't identified what they actually want in retirement and what they need this property portfolio to do. Yeah. So the question I ask most investors, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve at your point B position, how could you possibly go out there and sign a contract on a property? Yeah. Or do any investing at all in anything? if you don't know what you're trying to achieve and how that particular investment gets you closer to your end goal. Exactly, and and on that sort of goal, a lot of people will say, well, I wanna make sure I've got enough money in retirement. What, what can you sort of, what, 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 what advice can you give us in terms of, 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 of hitting different sort of portfolio benchmarks to, to live in, in, in various degrees of opulence? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, the, the typical thing, if I say to people, how much money do you want in retirement? The, the, the thing that people spit out is they say, I want $100,000 passive income. And that's just a standard figure. Not many people have actually worked out why. It just yep. sounds good. It's yep. a six-figure income. Yep. It's often more than they're earning now. Yep. So what I ask people back is say, okay, you're earning $80,000 a year now, so you're telling me in retirement you want to earn more than you're earning currently. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna have to do some things differently because up until now, you're only capable of generating 80,000. Yeah. So what do we need to do differently to get you to 100? Yeah. One of the questions we always ask people is that, have they actually calculated what they need in net assets to generate that income? Yeah. And so if we're looking at $100,000 passive income, we look at the property portfolio, for example, and we say for you to get $100,000 passive income, now this is before tax, yeah. you're gonna need a $2 million unencumbered property portfolio, so no debt, and that's assuming you can generate a 5% return. Yeah. Now, rental returns in Sydney, Melbourne, you're probably looking at three, four percent if you're lucky, mm. and that means you're going to need two and a half to three million dollars. Yes. And then obviously you've got to pay tax out of that as well. Yeah. So a lot of people's uh, point B goals are in their head. Yeah. And they're unrealistic. Like I want to get ten properties, for example. The the ten doesn't. The ten could be in Hobart, it could be in Ballarat, it could be in Sydney. Maybe in Sydney it's enough, but then it depends on your lifestyle. Correct. And then we're talking about unencumbered, right? So people go, oh, I've got you know ten properties, but my LVR is ninety percent on all of them. Like, is that going to be enough? Absolutely. And and that's that's exactly the point. Is that people are people we found, and and I found this myself as well. And, and this was you know no disrespect to friends and family and other people that I've worked with over the years, but a lot of people are sort of drifting through life. They're going to work and as I said before, they're busy, they've got a life. And they don't have the time to actually focus on what their long-term goals are. Yeah. And the biggest challenge is people think they've got time. They think they've actually got time to actually uh, build all of this wealth that they're gonna need in retirement. And we're looking at the, the state of the government right now, looking at the pension. You know, I'm 37 now. By the time I get to retirement age, pension is not going to be around. I certainly won't be waiting for it. But there's a lot of people out there that are going to be relying on the pension. Yeah. Their super is nowhere near enough. A lot of people have got wiped out in the GFC and yeah. various other things, and they're not taking um, any care of their super fund. I've got people my own age and, and older than me uh, in my networks that, that couldn't care less about their super. Yeah. And that was, they might have eight funds. You know? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's quite scary actually to think that people are sort of just drifting through life yeah. and they have no plan of what they're trying to achieve and they think they've got time. And very quickly you realize that you're in your mid forties and very quickly you're in your late fifties yeah. and people scramble. And I've seen this cause I've spoken to thousands of investors over the years and they scramble in their late fifties. And this is, this happens more often than people would think in the 56, 57, 58 is the time that we start getting calls from people saying, I want to retire in the next seven or eight years, what do I do? Yeah. 
And the biggest problem that I've got with that is that they think they've got enough time to actually fix the problem. Yeah, one good hotspot. <laughs> one, one good hotspot, but the problem is once you start getting older, the banks make it harder for you to borrow. Mm. So you think that in your 57, 58, you're yeah. actually getting towards the end of your available borrowing capacity. With yeah. most lenders, there's always lenders out there, but it just gets harder and harder the older you get. Yeah. So I always encourage anyone, the younger you are, the, the more you should be investing. And it's, uh, I guess, the, the delayed gratification, which is so hard for, for young people. It is difficult. We've talked about smashed avocado before on this, <laughs> this podcast. Well, we might leave that one alone. Mm. So you're the CEO of the Property Mentors. Now, the Mentors is, is, is not just a flashy part of the name. You actually do have mentors. Can you, can you tell us about what you do and how that sort of mentoring process works? Sure. So the Property Mentors was really established to give people the education. So the education is one part of what we do. And I would say that's that's probably the, the foundation of what we do. The education yep. is the foundation to the entire business. We want our investors to know what they're doing. We want people to understand why they're doing it in the first place, but we want to under, want them to understand what their strategy is and how it links into their goals. Yep. That's fundamental to what we do. We do a lot of education through our live events and our webinars and our, our online workshops that we run. And the second component to the business is the opportunities that we have. We've created some incredible opportunities that most investors have never heard of or will will never hear of. Uh, They're off market. They're sort of things that as a development business as well, we've we've got opportunities that people have never seen before. That's a bit different to say real estate agents that say, you know, I've I've got access to off market transactions. That's maybe someone not wanting to put their house on the internet because they're high profile or they're they're, they're scared about, you know, being too public about it. But you're, you're talking about off-market transactions where developers are trying to sell stock to meet certain obligations. We're talking about big things, right? Correct. And you know, we've got opportunities that, that uh, developers, for example, they might have their debt facility might be expiring and they need to move you know, three or four properties in a very fast period of time. Now, yeah. if they need to clear that debt facility to move on to another project that's going to make them another 10 or $15 million, they're not so much worried about giving up a bit of profit on these properties. So yeah. we might be able to say, hey, we've got a membership uh, you know, membership database, and they all want access to good properties and, yeah. and good deals. So um, we might be able to negotiate with that developer to get an incredibly good deal for our members. Yeah. Um, that might include a discount or the stamp duty paid or whoever, who knows, whatever else it is. It depends yeah. on the situation. But the developer will do those things for us because the relationship is more important to the developer than the money. Yeah. The developer can sell those properties on the retail market and get full price. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the developer might be holding that stock for three or four or five months yes. whilst they find a retail buyer and they have to wait for settlement. Yeah. Whereas with us, we've got members that are waiting for good opportunities and when they come up, they go out to our members first. Yeah. And developers um, are quite interested in finishing the project and moving on to the next one, right? Correct. They don't want to be tied up in it. You find that there's, there's, there's two different types of developers out there. Um, one of them is, is, I guess, your mum and dad type developer that's going out there and we're typically talking projects under $5 million. Yep. So anything under $5 million, you might have one or two or three townhouses, you might have some, some more high-end townhouses, you might have some uh, million dollar ones, there might be four or five of them. But really you're dealing in a, in a very competitive space because those types of projects can be done by mums and dads and small joint ventures, you might have two cousins that go and do a project, two yep. business partners. And it's a very competitive space which means the profits are 
they're, they're tighter yes. in that space as well. When you start moving into the space that we're in, the development projects that we do are anywhere from five to 50 million. Yeah. And we're not competing with the big end of town, the Emeritans and Mervacs, that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, we, we stay away from competing with those guys. They've got far deeper pockets than we could ever need. Yeah. Um, but then we stay away from the mum and dad type developments as well. So we're in that five to $50 million space and we also have networks in that space as well. Yeah. So we work very closely with other developers that are reputable. And when we're talking in that space, we're talking with developers that are commercial about their projects. Yeah. A mum and dad doing a three townhouse project, for example, they're a lot more emotionally attached to their project and yeah. might be their first one. So giving up any profit is something that they would never consider. Yeah. Whereas when you're talking about a commercial development uh, and a commercial development team, they're more likely to give up some of the profit because it means they're moving their, they're just rolling their funds over from project to project. Yeah, and they might be sitting on another site where they think we're going to make you know, a killing it's on brilliant. that one. So exactly, yeah. and so that's that's the reason why we've we've built these relationships. And these are the types of things that if you're an individual investor and you go out there and go door knocking to developers, a you probably don't know which ones to talk to, yeah. and b they're probably not going to talk to you if you're just going to go and buy one piece of stock one time. Yeah, they'll tell you to go and talk to the local agent, and yeah. good luck to you. But through our networks, we've got a a massive database, tens of thousands of people on our database. And through that, the developers and the people that we work with, they know that we have a, a membership database that's ready to act. And if yep. they need a fast transaction, it's a win-win. And is that sort of price point, the, you know, the five to 50 mil, is, is, does that have better investment prospects anyway? Because it, like, I guess I always have the fear that if you're buying a unit and there's 200 in the development, there's just there's an inherent lack of scarcity, but on the Correct. smaller side, you can still have a nice you know development with maybe some some good common amenities, but you don't have that competition. Yeah, exactly, work. and we, and we're we're very much mindful of that, and we we steer clear of inner city apartments and uh, yeah. areas like South Bank and Docklands and um, Fortitude Valley in Queensland and some of the inner city stuff in Sydney that's going up. We stay away from the inner city stuff. Um, just there's so much supply at the moment, and the yeah. problem is if you're on level 18 or level 21, they're usually the same floor plan just stacked on top of each other. So yeah. there's no differential if you're trying to sell, and if two or three are trying to sell at the same time, the only differential is on the price. Yeah, you know, you might have a very very similar view yeah. uh, from your apartment, but uh, yeah, we stay away from that type of uh, property. We usually stay away from things like pools and, and gyms and home theater systems and all of the the cool stuff they put in to yeah. sell them. They usually make the glossy brochures look good, yeah. but uh, once you've got the property, you end up you've, with maintenance problems and huge body corporate fees. Exactly, you've got to maintain that for the tenant. So can you, um, do, do you want to jump in? I was just going to say that in the, the third component to what we do at the Property Mentors is obviously the mentoring. So we've got the, the education, we've got the opportunities and then the mentoring. So the mentoring, just to answer your first question on that was, the mentors in our business have got experience in the property space. They've yep. already been out there investing in property. They've often done developments themselves, all different backgrounds from our mentoring team, but they're all experienced property investors in their own right. Yep. And they're here as mentors to genuinely help you long-term to yep. get from where you're at right now to where you want to get to. They're not salespeople. Yep. It's a very different relationship. A lot of people come in, you know, talk to one of our mentors and they say, send me a list of what you've got. Yeah. And for us, it's not about sending it's not a list of that. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very different relationship. And what we do in the first part of the, the process is to really get to know you. Yeah. And we invest a huge amount of time in, in anyone coming into our system first to get to know who you are, how you got to where you're at right now, yep. before we even really start talking about where you want to get to and how we do that. Yeah, that's great. That was going to be my next question is what, what the process is from, from the beginning. Can you give us an idea about some of maybe the clients that stand out in your mind that you've helped and what sort of results they've been able to achieve? 
Look, we've got we've got hundreds and hundreds of clients with so many different situations, but I guess some of the some of the examples are, um, and we've actually written about this in in the book that's coming out next year. We've got an example of a uh, a gentleman. We've we've changed his name, but we call him Joe. Joe. Um, and and Joe was sort of going out there and in, investing, and for all of these years, he'd been chasing high returns. So he would only invest in development projects or in any type of opportunity that would give him high returns. Yeah. And when I asked him about why he was doing it this way, he answered and, and said, oh, I just need to get the highest return so that I can, you know, you know, get get the best result in the fastest space of time. And when I asked him really what's the what's the real reason you're investing? And we had to drill down deep into really get him to understand why he was investing. Now he's in his late uh, late sixties. I think he's uh, late 60s, 66, 67 at the time. And it came down to the fact that he just wanted to leave a legacy for his kids. Right. And he said, okay, that's great, but what does that mean to you? Well, he said, well, when I leave the planet, I want to leave the money. Yep. And I said, well, what, is, what does that mean to you? And what it meant to him was that, well, if I leave the money, then they've got enough to live a comfortable life. Yep. And when we drilled into that even further, again, this is our process, is not to just accept that that's what he's doing and say, okay, well, if that's what you want, let's roll with that. I wanted to challenge him on why he's gone down this path and why he uh, wants this particular goal. And after asking quite a few more questions on this situation, what it turned out was that he actually wanted to leave a legacy for his kids, but when we asked him about it, we made him realize that what he really wanted was to be able to give the kids money but we said what if you because you, you, you've built a significant portfolio now yeah you can retire now and you can live on a, a good income for the rest of your life and you can still give them money yeah said if we restructured things this way you could actually retire now spend more time with your kids and still be able to give them money when you move on yeah but can you imagine how that would feel if you spent more time with them instead of working because it was still working yeah and, and I, I think play- most children would sort of say I don't care about the money, you know, don't Correct. worry about the retirement savings, you know, like ret- retire and retire. spend some time, spend some time, with, time with, with your grandkids. Exactly. Whatever, yeah. And that was exactly the, the case. And it was the realization that he had was saying that he had enough money to retire now. And he realized that through what, what he was actually doing, he was working full time still into his 60s and he was planning on working till he was 75. I don't know why or how, but he, he didn't particularly enjoy it. But the reason he was chasing the high returns is because he had in his mind a dollar figure that he wanted to leave each of his three kids. Yeah. Might have been a million dollars or whatever the figure is. Yeah. Because he hadn't achieved that yet, that's why he was still working and that's why he was investing in higher risk strategies yeah. to get that particular figure. Now, he was at risk of potentially losing some of his capital right. that he'd worked all these years for, 28 years I think it was, yeah. that he'd been investing in property. And so I think one of the examples of what we do is help people to realise that the path that you're on may not be... The best one. Yeah. Now, sometimes, it, sometimes it is, and it might just need some tweaking. Yeah. But in this particular case, we had a really, uh, really deep chat about, it and he says, um, "I said, what else? What else is affecting you right now? What What are your stresses?" And he says, "Look, to be honest, because I've been so frugal with my money, I invest everything, and I'm working so much, yeah. I haven't really looked after my wife, and I can tell that she's not happy." Right. And I said, "Well, what does what does that mean to you?" And oh, look, he's, she's. She'd like to go out for dinner some more, and I usually say no to that. And she'd like some some new clothes, and I usually say no to that. And it was all because of this this goal that he had in his mind of leaving this legacy to his kids. And, and at the end of the day, he wasn't spending time with his kids, and he wasn't enjoying the time with his wife. Yeah. And so, after going through a few different sessions, this wasn't on one phone call. 
his plan changed slightly. It was his decision to, to change his plan, and now what he's decided to do is retire in the next 12 months. Yeah. It's probably due about June next year. And he's now spending money that he's got in his life now, yeah. rather than putting it all off for the future. Yeah. And he's agreed to go and spend some holidays with the kids to spend some time with them teaching about what he's learned in his investing over 28 years. Yeah. So when he does leave the planet, sure, he'll be able to leave them some money, but he's enjoying his time with his wife now and he's also spending time with his kids and teaching them um, rather than teaching them how to fish rather than giving them fish, I suppose. Yeah, and that's awesome. And that may actually just put them in a better stead financially in the long term. Anyway. Absolutely, yeah. It's the education. And so this is the thing is that, you know, teaching people how to invest rather than just giving them the money and especially for your kids. If you're a parent and you've got young kids, the kids are watching everything that you do. Yeah. And I've seen this time and time again where people have come into our model and they've got the kids involved in what we do because they can see the benefit of actually learning about investing young. Yep. And you can teach the kids as much as you like, but if you're doing the opposite, yep. they're not going to follow. Yeah. So if you're out there investing and, and buying property and you know staying positive about your situation and working towards a, a point B goal, then your kids will follow that. And it's probably one of the best lessons you can ever give them. And there's a very key point uh, where you're normally their hero. It doesn't matter how spectacular you are, but you can be, yep. you know, your child's hero pretty easily um, before they turn into teenagers and uh, turn <laughs> horrible on you. Yes. Um, so just, just talking about the investing, you mentioned before and in the presentations you talk about um, the importance of, of things like the location, the type of property, and that people sort of get that backwards they focus on they focus on the property first mm. what, what what are people getting wrong there well it's, as we say in the presentation it's putting the cart before the horse i think uh, people going out there might be investing in a suburb that's close to where they live or they might have read something in the newspaper about xyz suburb being the next hotspot as we covered before yeah i think the the biggest challenge with that is that you're only looking at one set of data and there is so much data and information out there at the moment, it's hard to know which data actually applies to your situation. Yep. Um, some people are looking at, you know, I only buy positive cash flow properties. Yeah. You know, and they're saying, I don't buy apartments, I only buy something with land. Yep. Um, and there's no real justification behind that apart from someone's preconceived ideas. I had a yep. situation with somebody in Brisbane one time and it's probably about three years ago now and he told me um, that he would never invest in Melbourne. Right. You know, this is three years ago before Melbourne started to really pick up <laughs> he would have done well if he if he had but um he said he didn't would never invest in melbourne i said why why won't you invest in melbourne because he said i had a property there once and it didn't work out for me right so it's and, I said, it for life. and i said so here's a, here's a question for you i said do you think there's people in melbourne that are making people investing in melbourne that are making money investing in property here yeah. and he said well i guess so i said well why can't you yeah very simple question and then i think People's preconceived ideas of something that they've done, linking it back into the fact that it will never work for them again because they made a mistake and it's because they didn't have the education and the knowledge that they needed to actually make that move in the first place. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that idea where they've got to invest in the same state, they've got to invest in the same suburb, they live in a house so they've got to invest in a house. Yeah. They heard a bad story once about somebody that bought an apartment yeah. or that the body corporate fees are too high, yeah. so I should never buy an apartment because I've got to pay for body corporate fees. Um, apartments never grow in value. So a lot of the pe people have seen this stuff through the media, they've heard it through friends or family or wherever they've got it from, and people get stuck with these ideas in their head. And if you're an investor, you've got to be open to adapt and change. Yeah. You've got to be able to, uh, I guess, adapt as the market changes. There's opportunities in every market, and we're not property bulls or bears. We're not saying property is always good or always bad, 
we know that there's money to be made in every market. Yeah. And and just on that, the, the landscape is, is, is pretty interesting at the moment. You know, interest-only loans are harder to get. They're, they're a couple of basis points, uh, well, you know, 50 basis points or 100 basis points more than, than, than principal and interest. Sydney and Melbourne appear like they might be approaching a peak. Maybe they've got a year or two to run. But how, how do investors make solid returns in this kind of I guess there's, there's, it's a bit of an unstable future. Yeah, I guess it, the, the, good, the funny part about that is that there's, it's always been unstable, I guess. Right. It's always been an uncertain future. Um, people say, I use the term, um, people say, oh, we're in uncertain times. It's uncertain, right? Yeah. But when can you look back over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, when has it been certain? Yeah. You know, and this is the, this is the environment we're in. Um, Donald Trump has probably thrown us a curveball, yeah. um, and the fact that we're rolling our prime ministers every one or two years at the moment here in Australia probably gives people a little bit more uncertainty. Mm. Um, you hear a lot of stuff in the media about what UPRA is doing, making changes to investor lending and tightening up on interest-only loans and interest rates going up and down left, left right and sideways. But I think the, the main thing is stick to the fundamentals, yeah. um, and I think regardless of whether you're um, investing in WA or, or Sydney or Melbourne, it, it doesn't really matter if you're looking at investing for the long term. Yeah. For anyone that's investing to make a quick buck, that's for us, that's not spe- that's not investing, it's speculating. Yeah. It's not something we get involved with. So I don't want to pick a market, yeah. I want to invest for the long term. So yeah. any property I buy, I want to hold on to it. Yeah. And so if you're looking at holding the property long term, the markets will balance out over the longer term. And I always use this example, it's 2017 right now, Mike, if I could give you a, a property in Melbourne, any property in Melbourne, and I've picked it, I won't tell you where it is, yep. for 1997 price, would you buy it? Yeah. Right? yeah. I'd, ask, you, I'd ask how many you got. How many have you got? But <laughs> would you care where it is? No. Would you care if it's an apartment or a townhouse or a house? No. And this is the thing, if we're looking fast forward 20 years from now, I can imagine if we had the same conversation, would you buy a property in Melbourne from me at 2017 price? Yeah. I can imagine you'd say, I'd love to, how many have you got? Yeah. Because that's the nature of, of property is it's a house for people to live in. It's also an investment, but the majority of homes in Australia are owner-occupied. Owner yeah. So the house is the last thing people will let go. They'll sell the car, they'll sell the, the furniture, the cat, the dog, the kids, everything else. The last thing that they'll sell is the house. Yeah. So the reality is, is that because it's a, because owner-occupied properties are so... So, so much of the market here, um, regardless of interest rates going up or down, regardless of who's in power in Australia or overseas, people are still going to hold on to their own homes. There's that loss aversion, there's the fact that property is such a, an intrinsic part of the superannuation system, it, you know, it's, 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 it's our majority wealth component for the individual, so the government's uh, got a vested interest in making sure that it's doing all right as well. Well, we've got two, two powerful things at play. We've got the government and we've also got the banks. Yep. Now, both of those have a vested interest in maintaining the property market the way it is. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you've got local government. They rely on rates to come through, so they don't want property prices to drop. Yeah. Um, you've got the banks. They've got a huge exposure to property here in Australia. They don't want the, the prices to drop. So, and the government as well. The government doesn't want to become landlords. Yeah. So they don't want to take on having to house the, the rental population in this country. Exactly. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, drivers that support property here. And I think for me, the biggest thing is that it's a roof over everybody's head, yep. first and foremost. It's also a fantastic investment opportunity. Awesome. Now you mentioned before, you, you've written a book. Can we, we talk about that and when have. it's coming out? How do we get our hot little hands on it? Sure, it's not ready just yet. We've actually, literally on Friday, just uh, sent it off to the publishers for printing. Yep. Actually goes to print on, uh, on Monday this week coming up. 
So uh, we'll have uh, a handful of copies for our members. Yep. Uh, in uh, probably mid-December, we'll have some of those, but it, it'll actually be on the bookshelves in, in March, 1st of March is yep. the official launch. Awesome, looking forward to that. Now, um, I just wanted to, to finish off with, if there's one piece of advice you can offer to property investors, this might be a tricky one for you, but, <laughs> but what do you think that would be? Look, the one piece of advice I would always give to, to anybody, and I do get asked this question a lot, is, is really to set out a plan of what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have never done it in their lives. If I asked most people that are out there investing, whether it's in property or in shares or whatever else they're investing in, is what is your plan? Have you written it down? Have you put in the date and the dollars next to all of the things you're trying to achieve? Yeah. Nobody's ever done it. Right. Right. The reality is that some people have written it down uh, five years ago. They've written it down two years ago and it's in a drawer somewhere. They don't know where it is. Yeah. Um, the piece of advice that we would always give to people work out what you're trying to achieve what's your point b position and we call it the three d's so what that means is the dream or the goal yep. the date and the dollars right you need those three bits of information before you can start working backwards from that yep. so once you've worked out your dream date and dollars it sounds like a lot of fluff right people think oh fluff around with goals just tell me how i can invest and yep. get the best return people are right? suspicious of you because of these positive affirmations <laughs> yeah. you had on the wall yeah look at, at the end yeah well my friends were my uh, friends at 17 18 they were, what have you got all these positive quotes on your wall what's wrong with you <laughs> um you know and that they did actually think that was quite strange at the time i copped a bit of flack for it but i, I kept them up there um, but really it's coming down, what are you trying to achieve? And, and see, so the thing is in our education system here in Australia in particular, you don't sit around with your mates. Mike, do you sit around with your mates on a Saturday night and talk about your dreams and goals, drinking a few beers? Not normally, no. Not normally. I, I grew up uh, where that sort of stuff was actually frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, and I grew up in Perth, so anyone that's anyone that you know has, has grown up there would know what I mean. But it's, it's, it's being positive and, and setting goals and actually achieving, you know, the tall poppy syndrome in Australia, everyone likes to cut everyone back down to their level uh, for some reason, I don't know why. So yeah. I think setting goals and talking about it with your friends and family is not something that most people do. It's definitely not taught in our education system. And for me, really, it's, there's not many opportunities out there for you to sit down with somebody and talk through your goals openly and honestly yeah. and being accountable. See, the thing is, if you can write down all of your goals and put them on the fridge for a few weeks, if you're not achieving them after a few weeks, you'll pull them down and stick them in the drawer. Yeah, don't like oh, looking at those, because it just makes me look makes bad. me feel <laughs> depressed and upset, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So, so for us, it's really about helping people to set those goals, put the date and the dollars on them, and write down all of the things that you've always wanted to achieve. Because as yeah. we get older, we start discounting things and saying, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that. Yeah. You know, I wanted a property in the country one day, that's never gonna happen. I yeah. wanted to travel overseas once a year maybe every five years and this is what people do and they have the plan of upgrading the car every three years oh well, maybe we'll do it every five yeah and i've seen people that like they've had the same car for 20 years they yeah. just can't afford to have that extra repayment come out yeah so unless you're planning on the things that you're trying to achieve chances are based on statistics you're not going to achieve them yeah so if you start with the end in mind only then you can start working backwards from the end goal to what properties and what strategies and what things you need to do to get towards that goal and the one question that i would ask myself every day i taught this myself a long time ago is is this decision that i'm about to make going to get me closer to or further away from what i'm trying to achieve yeah and only once you've identified your goals you can really ask yourself that question yeah and i guess the answer to that will be pretty pretty clear once you've once you've narrowed it down yeah. look uh thanks very much for your time appreciate having you on it's great no worries mike thanks for your time